Yeah, so when I was talking about like sex, identity, attraction, arousal, the main point there is that like we find our core identity as sons and daughters of God. All right, that's the main point. So whenever these questions of uh, gender, gender identity, things like that, like the core thing to proclaim is always like we find our identity as sons and daughters of God. And that's our core identity. It's our base identity. So yesterday when we talked about the fundamental anthropological pattern being child, spouse, parent, the fundamental identity is in our child identity. It's in that love of entrusting myself to another person who's trustworthy and wants my good. Anything else is finding our identity in our attractions or our arousal. And that's the distortion that permeates our culture, is people identify with their attraction or their arousal instead of identifying with being a child of God. So Andrew Comiskey is this guy in Kansas City who runs this whole um, healing ministry for any kind of sexual brokenness. And the point of the healing ministry is like to reestablish our identity as children of God and to find our identity there. And as people start to do that, they start to find freedom from sin in their life, freedom from their insecurities, freedom from any kind of compulsive behaviors. What's his C-A-M-I-S-K-E-Y. And he will be in Lincoln November 9th, I think. I'm going to have him give a talk here for like family members of people who experience same-sex attraction. Um, and we're having him come for a study day along with Father Check and some people from Courage in November. So, all right. Well, that was my question. Isn't that what Courage is doing? Uh, it's what Courage is meant to do. Yep. Okay, it's what Courage is meant to do. So, um, this is more of an intense healing ministry that has a curriculum called Living Waters. And Living Waters came out about the same time as Courage. And Father Harvey was always like, close with the Living Waters community. And Andrew, who wasn't evangelical, has recently become Catholic. And so they're working on Catholicizing living waters. Um, So courage, I think the way that it runs uh, locally is it's just like mass confessions and kind of a meeting where guys talk. um, But it's not so much oriented towards like an intentional healing ministry. So if you imagine Unbound, if you're familiar with Unbound, it's like Unbound that's completely directed towards sexual brokenness. So it's made particular for sexual brokenness, like sexual abuse, same-sex attraction, sexual addiction, things like that. Um, So it's just more concentrated in that area. So the inventories and the things that you process and everything would be more particular to that area of life. All right. So yesterday we left off on this slide, and I apologize for, I'm going to break my computer later, Um, but uh, because I can't screen capture the slides, so you'll just have the audio recording, and I'll send you the PowerPoints, and that's the best I can do for now. Maybe I can figure it out. Um, So we left off on this slide about original solitude, original unity, pointing out that Genesis chapter 1 Man and woman, he created them. No mention of original solitude. Genesis chapter 2, 
allows us to think first about man inasmuch as through the body he belongs to the visible world while going beyond it. It then lets us think about the same man but through the duality of sex. Okay, so Genesis chapter 2 allows us to see ourselves as sons and daughters, then as spouses. Okay, we also did that slide. We also did that slide. Okay, so when we talk about original unity, that original unity of man and woman, their unity denotes above all the identity of human nature. Okay, so the union of man and woman, that he, when Adam sees his wife Eve, he's able to identify with her as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, okay, which denotes the identity of human nature, that they're both created in the image of God. Duality, on the other hand, shows what, on the basis of this identity, constitutes the masculinity and femininity of created man. Okay, so you have unity and difference. It shows that man has been created as a particular value before God, but also as a particular value for man himself. First, because he is man. Second, because the woman is for the man, and vice versa, the man for the woman. We did this yesterday too, didn't we? Did we do this yesterday? I don't think we did. Okay. All right. Overcoming solitude and an affirmation for both human beings of everything in solitude that constitutes man. In the biblical account, solitude is the way that leads to unity that we can define following Vatican II as communio personarum. Okay, so the communion of persons that we talk about in the Second Vatican Council has to do with two people who both have their own identity in God who then enter into communion with each other. Right? And this is a concept that was very difficult for me to wrap my head around when I was in graduate school because it seemed to be that being in communion with each other had to do with losing my identity and finding my identity in the other. But everybody who writes on this, especially Angelo Scola, talks about how these two people who are in communion retain their individuality. Right? And then they enter into communion with each other as individuals. Right? As individuals who live for the other person or make a gift of themselves to the other person or trust the other person. So it has to do with like knowing who I am so that I can give myself completely to another. If we lack that identity of who we are in God, it becomes impossible for us to make a gift of ourselves to the other. Instead, I end up trying to fill up myself with the other. Right? And this goes to Sister Mary Helen's point of like kids who want to be another person, like they want to fill themselves up with this other person. In this solitude, he opens himself to a being like himself, defined by Genesis as a help similar to himself. His solitude is not only the first discovery of the characteristic transcendence proper to the person, but also as the discovery of an adequate relation to the person, and thus an opening toward and waiting for a communion of persons. Everybody's like, what? 
But what he says in the sentence is packed because when he says his solitude is not only the first discovery of the characteristic transcendence proper to the person, we'll stop. Okay, so transcendence is a characteristic of the human person defined by philosophers like Emmanuel Mounier, Buber, and other personalist philosophers. Okay, and so transcendence is that quality of the human person that is open to something greater than ourselves. Right? It's that openness to God. And so in solitude, there's the first discovery of that openness to God or my identity as a son. Okay, but also, it's the discovery of an adequate relation to the person. It's an adequate relation to the other person. And thus an opening toward and waiting for that communion of love that exists between two persons. Okay, so again, the reason I put all these really complicated quotes in the slides is that there is no communion between two persons without those two persons first being in relation with God. Okay, and going back to some of the comments from yesterday, so often we try to like solve our problems through relationships with people. And we forget about that transcendent aspect. Or, on the other hand, we might try to solve all our problems through the transcendent aspect as separate from our relationships with other people. Say and, again, okay, so somebody might have relational difficulties. And they're going to solve that by the relationship with the person. Like, I feel empty inside, so I need a person to fill up my emptiness. We'll, we'll talk about this when we talk about sin. Okay, and so this person becomes my savior. And I try to do that without God being involved. Now, on the other hand, somebody might have relational problems that they try to solve with God alone. And they just ignore relationships with other people. And so, again, I'll use addictions because I've just found that addictions are a laboratory for love. They're like a laboratory to discover what it really means to be a human being. Because people who have addictions will often do this. right? They'll often try to solve it by merely spiritual means. Especially, I, I find this to be particularly... Um, characteristic of very religious people. So a very religious person who has an addiction, they try to pray their way out of the addiction. The only person they ever disclose the addiction to is their confessor. And they try to pray their way out of it. And I say, have you ever gone to a group, like, uh, like an anonymous group, like a 12-step group? No, no, I would never do that. But they're trying to like fix it like spiritually without ever addressing human relationships. And it doesn't, trans it doesn't translate, and usually it doesn't lead to sobriety for that person until they start to integrate both those things. Right? So when we look through the 12 steps of the 12 step groups, right? first I admit I'm powerless, I need this higher power, I surrender my life to the higher power, then I start to heal human relationships, and at the end I start to help other people who are caught up in addiction. 
right? That's the way it goes. It's not like it just happens with God and I go on with my life as if this doesn't enter into the rest of my life. So you as a priest need people um, to help you with your process? Of course I do. Okay. So, but... I just locked myself in a closet. (laughs) I mean, you you hear, I I hear priests talk about it, and and I talk about my relationship with my wife and and other people, and they say, but I have a relationship with Jesus. I have a relationship, you know. um, Yeah. and, And... yeah, I get the same look on my face that you have right now when, when I hear them say this. Now, there are people who, like Carthusians, who really, like, they have de- devoted their life to solitude, and their life is about perfecting that solitude with God. But yet, like, in that solitude with God, they still actually are in communion with each other, they just don't talk to each other. They take his vow of silence or whatever. But there's still, like, common work that they do and things like that, and... and and it, there's still, I imagine, the sense of belonging among them um, in relation to each other. Um, so, like, I am way healthier when I have some very good married friends. And I am way healthier when, at the end of the day, and I'm feeling kind of like, I just got run over by a truck. I'm way healthier when I call them up and I say, hey, I'm coming over. And I just go over and I sit around and we talk about whatever, anything. I'm way healthier that way. I'm way healthier when rectory life is actually a community where we eat meals together and we hang out together and we talk to each other. Just way healthier. And when those relationships can be open and those relationships can be honest and I know that I am known by another person and they accept me with all my faults. Okay, but I would say that this is a very great difficulty in the church right now. It's just a very difficult. It's a very great difficulty because I think a lot of us fall into that temptation that I don't need relationships. I just need you know Jesus, and then all of a sudden I'm becoming bitter in things, and I don't understand why. Because there is a greater difficulty to. I mean, when people are married, sometimes I'm jealous of married people. But mostly because like, if a husband's not being a good husband and his wife's a good wife, she's going to be like, hey, pull your head out and tell you. Whereas with me, Jesus does say, pull your head out um, of the sand. But sometimes it's easier for me to ignore him than a physical person who's right there who confronts me and forces me to confront myself. So it, it is a difficulty. But priests do need communion and community. And there are like movements of diocesan priests that what they do is they live in community. They all live in one rectory and go out and do their apostolate. But priestly fraternity is very important to them. So, because I, I do struggle with that. Because I go back to the rectory, I usually, last night I got home at 11. So everybody else is asleep, and I go home, and it's like, I'm all by myself. And I have to go, I'm by myself with Jesus. I'm alone with Jesus. Jesus, you're welcome to eat this frozen pizza with me. And, and I say that kind of joking, but actually serious. Right, so we do need human relationships. 
Like we're, that's why God designed us, designed us to be in relationship with each other. All right. In his solitude, he opens up to a being like himself, as defined by Genesis as help similar to himself. Okay. Okay, I just did that one. Communio says more and with greater precision because it indicates precisely the help that derives in some way from the very fact of existing as a person beside a person. So when we say this word communio, it doesn't just mean like community, but it indicates precisely that help that comes from being a person beside a person. It just, it is like that help that was just, that you brought up, that if I have just somebody else around me, just the fact that I'm beside a person is a great help to me. Right? This is very important when we talk about suffering people. Like Suffering people just need somebody to sit beside them. And somebody who's capable of containing their suffering. And this is a great struggle for many people. Because if this person's suffering, that means I could be suffering. When I'm around them, I feel like I could be suffering. And I don't want to be suffering, so I'm going to like avoid this person. And most of the time, what suffering people need is they just need somebody to sit beside them. Somebody's going through a divorce. What do they need? They just need somebody to sit beside them. Say, I'm here. There's nothing I can do. I don't understand the pain that you're going through, but I'll be here. That's what they need. What do people get? Oh, you just need to get back out there. You need to get back on the horse. You need to start dating again. You need to leave that guy. Like, that's what happens. And that advice comes a lot of times from friends. But why does that advice come? It comes because that friend doesn't want to deal with the fact that their marriage could be in trouble. So we're not willing to enter into other people's suffering. And, and that's something all of us need to cultivate in our lives. I experienced that as a priest, sitting around with all my priest friends and talking just about my family. And I might say something like, you know, I have this family member. When they call and I say their name on Skype, I feel like all my energy just drains out of my body. And they're all like, how can you say that about your family? You're so uncharitable. You're a bad person. Or to talk about, you know, my parents got divorced and I'm trying to work through this and all that. And they're just like, um, see you later. Doesn't know. Best place I ever was, was an Al-Anon meeting, actually. It was me and 30 women. That was it. <laughs> and I, like, said this line about how I respond sometimes to family members. And every one of those women in that circle just started laughing. And I was like, oh, these are my people. <laughs> because I felt like they understood me. You know, I felt like they understood me. And that's what that kind of communion does. And the church really needs to be that kind of communion for other people. In the biblical account, this fact becomes through itself existence of the person for the person. Given that in his original solitude, man existed in some way already in this relation. Okay? So again, most of these quotes I'm just putting here to show how much John Paul II is emphasizing original solitude or sonship. The communion of persons could form itself only on the basis of a double solitude of the man and woman, or as an encounter in their distinction from the world as living beings, which gave both the possibility of being and existing in a particular reciprocity. Right? They find union with each other in the fact that they both see that they're distinct from the rest of the world. 
and that makes it possible for them to be in relationship with one another. Indispensable for this solitude was everything that was constitutive in providing the foundation for the solitude of each, self-knowledge, self-determination, and the awareness of one's own body. Okay, in order to experience that original solitude, solitude with God, union with God, we have to have self-knowledge, will, self-determination, and the awareness of our own body. Because it's our body who reveals who we are. Our body reveals to us that we're different from the animals. Genesis 2 reveals that the complete and definitive creation of man expresses itself in giving life to the communion of persons that man and woman form. Okay, the complete and definitive creation of man in original solitude is, expresses itself in giving life to the communion of persons that's formed between the man and the woman. So again, we have to be sons before we're spouses. Sons and daughters before we're spouses. Man became the image of God not only through his own humanity, but also through the communion of persons, which man and woman form from the beginning. Okay, so this goes back to when we're talking about the Trinity being the image of the family, the family being the image of God's love in the Trinity. Okay, so the image of God is not only in my individuality, but also the communion formed by man and woman reveals the image of God. On the basis of the original and constitutive solitude of his being, man has been endowed with a deep unity between what is humanly and through the body male in him and what is equally humanly and through the body female in him. On this, the blessing of fruitfulness descended. So again, marriage is built on that solitude of being the image of God and in union with God. You know, for all these reasons, one of my focuses in marriage preparation is how do we help these people to be in union with God first? Because the thing that will help marriages is if both people know our Lord and are in union with our Lord. All the communications classes in the world aren't going to help as much as them being in union with our Lord. Sister? Yeah, so I think that this is an Italian translation deal, okay? Where what is male in him refers to man, which refers to mankind. What is female in him refers to mankind. Okay, there is a dimension of um, but it gets really confusing. So I would just read that as what is female in mankind because when he talks about man, he's often talking about the duality of masculinity and femininity. Um, but when it translates from the Italian, the Italian pronoun was him, and so that's the way it got translated into English. But it probably reads better. I can look it up. I have the Italian text in my office. Um, 
So flesh of my flesh, the man speaks these words as if it were only at the sight of the woman that he could identify and call by name that which makes them in a visible way similar, the one to the other, and at the same time that which humanly is manifested. Okay, again, he's identifying, calling by name the thing that makes them similar, and at the same time that in which humanity is manifested. So the body reveals man. In this first expression of the man, flesh from my flesh, it contains also a reference to that by which the body is authentically human and thus to that which determines man as a person, that is, as a being that is also in his bodiliness similar to God. Masculinity and femininity express the twofold aspect of man's somatic constitution and indicate, in addition, through the same words of Genesis 2.23, the new consciousness of the meaning of one's body. This meaning, one can say, consists in reciprocal enrichment. So there's a new consciousness of what it means to be a man when Adam is confronted with the woman. There's a new consciousness of what it means to be a woman when Eve is confronted with a man. So again, we talked about this yesterday, this idea that when a man confronts a woman, he has to reflect on what it means to be a man. What makes me different from this person? You know, and the same when a woman confronts a man. What makes me different from this person? And that difference is good, and that difference is beautiful. And it's also very countercultural to think about Focusing on this relationship leads to a confrontation of myself and what does it really mean to be me? Because the rhetoric in our society is often that gender doesn't matter, everybody can do what everybody else can do. It's very functional. And we don't appreciate difference. The knowledge of man passes through masculinity and femininity, which are, as it were, two incarnations of the same metaphysical solitude before God and the world two reciprocally completing ways of being a body, and at the same time of being human, as two complementary dimensions of self-knowledge and self-determination, and at the same time two complementary ways of being conscious of the meaning of the body. All right, we come to know ourselves in this reflection on masculinity and femininity. Right? Men and women are two incarnations of that meaning of being a body, of our solitude before God. And when we say that they're complementary, it means mutually enriching. Mutually enriching. So sometimes when we think about complementary, we think of it as... Um, two pieces of a puzzle that somehow are going to fit together. <coughs> Which is not anthropologically sound. Okay, when we think that like men are one half of the puzzle and women are another half of the puzzle and complementarity means that there's some defect here, so there's some defect here, so they need each other to complete each other. There's something anthropologically unsound about it. Because this means that my completion comes in a woman, or her completion comes in a man. 
So this whole focus on original solitude and the importance of it means that for the man and the woman, they both have a relationship with God first in which they find fulfillment as a son and a daughter respectively so that they can then have a relationship with each other. So I retain my individuality and my identity in God and now I enter into communion with this other person. I'm not looking for somebody to fill up what's missing in me. I see somebody that I want to lay my life down for and give my life to them. Okay, this idea of this puzzle that gets put together is based in Platonic philosophy. All right, do you all know Plato's origin story from the, what is that in, symposium? Right? So in Plato's symposium, there were three original people. Okay, there was a man, a woman, and an androgynous being. And so in Plato's origin myth, what happened was these three original people were all split in two. So you have half a man, half a man, woman, man, half a woman, half a woman. And we find our fulfillment by finding that other half of ourselves. And this is how Plato would explain same-sex attraction. It's also the justification that many very smart people use to justify same-sex attraction and same-sex relationships. I'll think of her name. Um, There's a philosopher at University of Chicago who's written a lot of very high-powered academic books defending homosexual relationships. And she basically says that sexual morality is based on fidelity to whatever myth you subscribe to. And so she would say, if you're faithful to this myth, then it's morally licit. Um, So Martha Nussbaum, that's her name. All right. So this is a false anthropology. We all recognize that. We all know that. But if you ever talk about soulmates and you propagate the soulmate soulmate idea, you're subscribing to this anthropology. Right, like the yin yang symbol. But like, there's a book, and I like Jason Everett. I think he's a good guy. Um, starting to be friends with him. But he has a book called How to Find Your Soulmate Without Losing Your Soul. And so this idea, and a lot of people are growing up with this idea that God has like one person. It's your vocation to marry this one person. And so if that's true, then that means that I'm subscribing to this anthropology. And then I fall into the same anthropology as that anthropology. Okay, so it's another area where we can get into trouble because of the way that we talk about soulmates, relationships, the way we understand marriage as a vocation and a sacrament. And it happens when we lose sight of like this dimension that I'm spending so much time going over and putting some of you to sleep. So... Um, okay. Do we need to take a break? Sister Regina Marie says no. (laughs) All right.
Femininity finds itself before masculinity while masculinity confirms itself through femininity. The function of sex that is being male or female, which in some way is constitutive of for the person, shows how deeply man, with all his spiritual solitude, with the uniqueness and unrepeatability proper to the person, is constituted by the body as he or she. Right? Being male or female is constitutive for the person. And it shows how deeply man, with all of his spiritual solitude, his identity in God, and with the uniqueness and unrepeatability proper to his person, is constituted by the body as he or she. So our bodiliness and our masculinity and our femininity is constitutive of for who we are. Right? And this is a point that like, gives us reason to reflect more on that. And when he says the function of sex, that is being male or female, right? he is also using that same kind of vocabulary I used in the first hour. Right? Sex is your body type. But what he's saying is that's constitutive for the person. Like your body is something you've received from our Lord. Like it's, you've received it from God. You know, so the rejection of our body is actually the most intolerant thing that we can ever do. Is to be intolerant of our own body. When talking about becoming one flesh, the biblical formulation, one flesh, so extremely concise and simple, indicates sex, that is, masculinity and femininity, as the characteristic of man, male and female, that allows them, when they become one flesh, to place their whole humanity at the same time under the blessing of fruitfulness. Right, so that one flesh union, when we talk about one flesh union, it incorporates and should incorporate everything that we've already talked about. Our relationship to God, the fact that we make God visible in the world, the fact that we find ourselves in relation with other people, That my masculinity is confirmed before femininity. Femininity finds itself before masculinity. All of that is contained there. And then we place our whole humanity under the blessing of fruitfulness. It's an offering of our humanity to God's blessing. And asking our Lord into it. It's really two people who mutually entrust themselves and their lives and their relationship to God. Right? We entrust our lives and our relationship to God. So when we talk about things like contraception, right? contraception is the lack of trusting our relationship to God. You know, what's missing in a couple who uses contraception is entrusting their marriage to our Lord. And so there's something that's, a, that's missing about their faith life. And it really should be addressed at the level of faith life. You know, in addition to 
what we usually say. What we usually say is we start off with the doctrine, and we say that the unitive and procreative ends of the marital act can never be separated one from the other, humane vitae 11. But the deeper question is, like, have you really surrendered your life to Jesus or not? And as a couple, have you surrendered your marriage to Jesus or not? And if not, what is it about our Lord that's not trustworthy? How can we like, come to know our Lord's trustworthiness? Because if we don't come to know our Lord's trustworthiness, we cannot entrust ourselves to him. Now i got two hands going up in the air. Yeah. Isn't this also saying that contraception is denying who we are in our own identity um, as male and female? In the sense that it's a rejection of our identity as sons and daughters of God. Yeah. Yeah. I would try to keep it as simple as possible and as clear as possible. Um, because the more like complicated we make it, because we can say a lot of things, but the more complicated we make it, sometimes we make a jump that's too much. Um, like even with like when the bishop's pulpit announcement about same-sex marriage, it said like homosexual acts are harmful to society, which is true, but it, there's a lot of things that need to be fleshed out before you get from A to B or A to C. That might have been like A to F. Um, to be clear about social sin, how social sin works, being born into a society that is accepted something that's sinful and things like that. And so, so there is some denial of that. Um, and it becomes a selfish act, but at its core, it starts with that rejection of God's life. Uh huh. I think the question is: Have you completely surrendered your life to our Lord? Have you surrendered your marriage to our Lord? That's a question that's aside from whether you're contracepting or not, or using natural family planning. So, um, because the church allows for people to use natural family planning, if they have discerned that they cannot accept a child at this time or that they have a serious reason to avoid at this time. And there are serious reasons to avoid that are laid out in Humana Vitae. Now, does everybody who uses natural family planning have a serious reason to avoid? I don't know because we don't claim the authority to make that determination for another person and their subjectivity. So it's always up to the couple to discern this and it's, a, it's their own relationship with Christ that's at work there. There's no formula. Like, I'm not going to have anybody bring me their W-2 form and fill out how many babies they should have by now. Um, but it is a danger that people might, um, they might not be entrusting their life completely to our Lord. And there are plenty of people who like, have a plan in their head that use NFP. And their plan in their head might be that they have eight kids, but they're going to have eight kids spaced two years apart. And then they go through a period of infertility. And then they think God doesn't love them. And, or they might have a miscarriage. And things go wrong. Like things don't go according to plan. And that's only sustainable when things go wrong. It's only sustainable when we entrust our life to our Lord. And we believe that our Lord is helping us and watching out for us. 
Now, the formulation I prefer to use with regard to contraception is babies should be welcomed, not wanted. Like a child is to be welcomed as somebody that God sends into your life and they just show up. And you're like, okay, there's this little person here who has their own identity, their own individuality. When a child is wanted, it's kind of received as the purpose of this child is to fulfill some desire in me. And a wanted child always sort of grows up in debt to their parents because their parents decided when, how, and under what circumstances they would be born. This especially is a danger when a child is born from in vitro fertilization where um, like Robert Spayman's a philosopher who helped write the document Donum Vitae. And what he said during the reflections was that a child born from in vitro fertilization will always be able to blame his life on his parent. Because the parent's agency in that child being born was so strong. Like the parent decided, we're going to have a baby and this is how we're going to do it. We're going to do it in a lab and make sure that I can get pregnant in order to have this baby. And because of the agency the parent is so strong, there's no room for, like, God decided we were going to have this baby. It's more like mom and dad decided to have me and now I'm indebted to them and I can blame my life on them. And I think a lot of young people just like, we, that's our cultural attitude right now, is like kids can blame their life on their parent. And we have kids who they don't take responsibility very easily. They uh, don't really have their own identity. They don't have a sense of the future where they're going. Um, but just about everybody's grown up in a culture where like our cultural attitude is that people decide when, where they're going to have babies. Um, one of the lectures we had um, I forget her name she was uh, actually a sociologist and her formulation was that we live in a world where only wanted babies should be born and every wanted baby must be born right only wanted babies should be born supported by abortion Every wanted baby must be born, supported by in vitro fertilization, whatever else we do, whatever means we use. And so the idea that just a kid would show up, totally foreign. You know, and there's something different about that. There's something different even in the way that parents interact with their children sometimes when they've been like waiting to have a baby, waiting to have a baby, waiting to have a baby, they couldn't get pregnant, then they finally get a baby and they're like, okay, this is my baby and I need to protect my baby. And I've had couples like they won't let the baby stay with grandma because they don't trust grandma. Because this is like the baby I've always wanted and I need to protect it. You know, whereas like sometimes big families, like where there's a 10-year gap between like the last baby and the baby before. It's just like the bonus baby. They went to the Bahamas on their vacation or something. Like that baby comes in the world and they're like, God sent you into the world. Like you're going to figure out your life. You know, not saying they're going to be a bad parent, but that there's no expectations about who that child's going to become. There's no expectations about who that child's going to become. They just, God sent them in the world and that's what they're going to be. You know, and we do fall into the temptation of I'm going to have like a doctor, a lawyer, a priest, a pharmacist, and kids like they should have their own identity and freedom growing up. You know, sometimes we rob young people of their freedom. Um, 
it's like the dad who didn't win the high school championship who makes his kid practice 12 hours a day to like make the touchdown that he didn't make in high school to fulfill the dad's like unfulfilled dreams. You know, that dynamic happens quite often. And it leads to resentment. All right. I'm going to do one more slide and then we'll take a break. On the level of man and in the reciprocal relationship of person, sex expresses an ever new surpassing of the limit of man's solitude which lies within the makeup of his body and determines its original meaning. This implies that in a certain way, one takes upon oneself the solitude of the body of the second eye as one's own. Okay, so again, I'm just going to kind of run through these because all of these slides are building on the same theme and really it's just to kind of drill into our heads how important that this is. Genesis 2.24 itself indicates not only that human beings created as man and woman have been created for unity, but also that precisely this unity through which they become one flesh has from the beginning the character of a union that derives from a choice. Okay, the man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. Like That becoming one flesh is the character of a union that derives from a choice. Like I choose you to unite myself to. Right? And that's in opposition to I settle for you or in opposition to I have to be with you on the basis of my drives or compulsions but I choose you. You know, I choose to let you know me completely. I choose to lay down my life for you. You know, and that's that element of will that's so important that we don't emphasize enough. You know, to choose who it is that gets to know me completely. To choose who it is that I want to live my life for. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites to his wife. The body which, through its own masculinity and femininity, helps the two from the beginning to find themselves in a communion of persons, becomes in a particular way the constitutive element of their union when they become husband and wife. This takes place through a reciprocal choice, again. So the body is significant in that it's through the body that we find ourselves in relationship with God. It's through the body that we come into relationship with somebody who is like us but not like us. And it's through the body that that particular union of husband and wife is constituted. The body is holy. This is why God gave us our bodies. And it's something that's cause for deep reflection. Because so many times we're not educating or not even reflecting on the significance of our bodies. And our bodies matter. This union carries within itself a particular awareness of the meaning of that body in the reciprocal gift of self-gift of the person. Okay, that union between husband and wife has within it a particular awareness of the meaning of the body in the reciprocal gift, self-gift of the persons. 
So somebody is aware that the body of this person reveals the entire person. I'm uniting myself to the entire person. In my original thought process, this course was going to cover the entire catechesis. And I think my goal now is to get through the anthropological portion, which is about the first half. Um, because you have really good questions, and I think they're important, and I think it's all really foundational. Um, so, yeah, so I'm not going to worry about that, but I just realized I'm on slide 18 out of 32 of the second class, which really would have been under yesterday, so <laughs> doing all right. All right. So the experience of the experiences of solitude and unity, these two original experiences are foundational and they're at the root of every human experience. Right? At the root of every human experience is this sort of question of who am I? And this question of who am I in relation with other people or who is this other person to me? The human experience of the body is on the threshold of all later historical experiences. Okay, so all of our experiences in life you know, are related back to our experience of being a body, being in relationship. Okay, and this is it's a really very basic human truth that we would not have had to catechize about 15 years ago. But I'm, I fear that today we actually have to teach people that you're supposed to be in relationship with other people. This is what a relationship looks like. This is what real communication looks like. Because we've accelerated so quickly and so rapidly into this world, like a virtual living, this world of false relationships through social media, this weird world of Snapchat as the primary means of communication between two young people, that people really don't know how to be in relationship with other people. You know, somebody asked me about video gaming earlier, and video games are now, like, people get sucked in for hours on a video game. I played Donkey Kong, and I got bored, and I went outside and played because it wasn't that exciting. Right? It was like playing a board game on the TV screen. But today, people get sucked into this virtual reality world that's very addictive and it spikes all the dopamine in their brain and they just zone out. They're just doing it to zone out and not be in relationship with people. And so their experience of being a body even is not something they're experiencing. Because when we zone out, we sort of have an out-of-body experience. Right? It's just for the numbing effect of it, and we forget who we are. Right? And excessive amounts of media can do that to us. You know, when I was in Rome and I was going through my depression, I should call it my purification of my sonship. <laughs> but I was going through this depression. Why? Because I was learning all about sonship. It was like, sonship, it's really important. And I'm like, I don't understand that. Like, what... Why do they keep talking about this? And, uh, and it was agitating my own wounds. And so I would go back to my room and I discovered some websites where you could just watch every single TV show that's ever aired in the history of TV. And I started watching seasons of TV at a time 
and got to the point where I could get away with in grad school watching like 18 hours of TV a day if I didn't have to go to class. I watched all eight seasons of One Tree Hill in three weeks. It's not even a good show. And I wake up in the morning worried about the character in the show. I was like, oh my gosh, what happened to Brooke? And I had to realize, like, that's not real. Because I had so dissociated in that experience. And it was not healthy. I don't advocate doing that. And our Lord had to heal a lot of things. And, like, very gratefully he did. Um, But I do think a lot of our young people, they live like that. Because they're so like dissociated in media and video games and things like that. And they're not communicating with another person face to face. You know, one time the Pope was driving by me and I was looking at him through my mobile device. And I wasn't looking at I was like, what am I doing? Like I need to look him in the face. But I was looking at him through my mobile device so I could take a picture. You know, that's the world we live in now where everything is mediated by a screen. And we're losing track of like the bodiliness of relationship and being in relationship with another person. Um, and so we do live in a world that we have to actually teach people to be in relationships again. All right, the third original experience is original nakedness. And it comes from the line where it says in Genesis chapter 2, they were both naked and not ashamed. Now this is Christopher West's favorite line. Okay, so if you have read Christopher West's books, or if you have listened to his talks, or seen his DVDs, this is his favorite line. When he first released a Theology of the Body series of cassette tapes, they were called Naked Without Shame. And so when he talks about that, he kind of focuses a lot on nakedness and nudity. But when... It says they were naked and not ashamed. It means something more than that. right? It means something more than nudity. This statement undoubtedly describes their state of consciousness, or even better, their reciprocal experience of the body, that is, the man's experience of the femininity that reveals itself in the nakedness of the body, and reciprocally, the analogous experience of masculinity by the woman. Right? It describes their state of consciousness or the reciprocal experience of being a body, a body that reveals a person, a person that's in union with God just like I'm in union with God. All of the content we just did, that's what's expressed in this experience of being naked without shame. And when we talk about being naked without shame, the only point of reference we have is what it was like to have shame. So it says... Then the eyes of both were opened and they realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay? Then is the key word, John Paul II says. Before, they had no shame and they were able to live in a relationship with each other. After, they realized they're naked, they sew fig leaves and start to hide from each other. In the experience of shame, the human being experiences fear in the face of the second eye. Thus, for example, the woman before the man. And this is substantially fear for one's own eye. 
Okay, we experience fear in the face of another person. Emmanuel Levinas says that the face of the person says, don't kill me. Okay, it's a famous line. The face of the person says, don't kill me. Because the face of another person reveals that person is vulnerable, right? Yesterday we said that person is penetrable. And so when we come face to face with another person who's vulnerable, then we realize we're vulnerable and we don't like to feel vulnerable. So the way to not feel vulnerable is to kill that person, right? So the face of the person says, don't kill me. And so when we talk about shame, it's fear in the face of another person, which is substantially fear for myself. I'm afraid for myself. I'm afraid that this person is a threat to me. Right? Shame is always manifested when we're afraid we're going to get in trouble or we're afraid we're going to be discovered. We're afraid if somebody really knew me, they would reject me. Still recording. I recorded the whole break. Um, with shame, the human being manifests instinctively, as it were, the need for the affirmation and acceptance of his I according to its proper value. He experiences this at the same time within himself and toward the outside in the face of the other. So this idea of shame is the manifestation, the instinctive manifestation of our need for affirmation and acceptance. So when we feel shame, we're afraid we won't be affirmed or accepted. And he says, affirmation and acceptance of this I, according to its proper value. We're afraid that somebody's not going to accept me for who I am, that I have value in who I am. Shame has a fundamental significance of the formation of ethos in the relations between human beings who live together, particularly in the relation between a man and a woman. The analysis of shame clearly indicates how deeply it is rooted precisely in their mutual relations, how exactly it expresses the essential rules for the communion of persons, and likewise, how deeply it touches the dimension of man's original solitude. Okay, so shame has a fundamental significance for the formation of ethos. Ethos means like sort of the rules for governing relationships. And there can be a cultural ethos about relationships. There can be a cultural ethos that's healthy. There can be a cultural ethos that's unhealthy. And so when we talk about shame, we see it's rooted in the rules for the communion of persons, that I'm called to love the other person, to give myself to the other person. And it also touches that dimension of original solitude. Because if we know who we are in God, what we want is another person to accept us as God's accepted us. And also, if we know who we are in God, we have less fear that other people won't accept us. The more rooted I am in my filial identity, my identity as a son of the Father, the less worried I am that somebody's going to reject me if they found out that I was depressed when I was in Rome and watched 18 hours of TV a day. 
original solitude, right? Remember, it's a non-identification with the world. Identify with God, not the world. This gives way in consequence of man's creation as male and female to the happy discovery of his own humanity with the help of the other human being. Nakedness corresponds to that fullness of consciousness of the meaning of the body that comes from the typical perception of the senses. Okay, we have a full consciousness of the meaning of the body as we perceive it through the senses. Communication in its original meaning is directly connected with subjects who communicate precisely based on the common union that exists between them. Both to reach and to express a reality that is proper and pertinent to the sphere of subject persons alone. So communication here also is a philosophical term taken from the personalist philosophers. So communication is actually, it's one of the characteristics of being a human being, which means that we come to know ourselves in relationship with other people. They were created for a relationship, we come to know ourselves in relationship with the other people. Okay, so Emmanuel Meunier, one of his lines is the, how does it go? The, the you precedes the I which form the we. Right? Like we cannot say the pronoun I unless we say the pronoun you. Because without being able to say you, my I has no meaning. Right? I come to know myself in a relationship with other people. The you precedes the I which form the we. So it sort of goes in that order. I can recognize another person and call them by name. That that has to happen before I can use the pronoun I. And it's the you and the I that form a we. Right? When we're in communion with each other. When we have that common union. The body manifests man and in manifesting him acts as an intermediary that allows man and woman from the beginning to communicate with each other according to that communio personarum willed for them in particular by the creator. Okay? The body manifests us and it acts as the means by which we enter into relationship with each other. Right, so it's the body that allows us to be in relationship. Right, why did God give you a body? So you can be in relationship. Okay, and so you can be in any relationship, right? Not just a sexual relationship. So you can be in relationship in general. Right, as kids are growing up and we start to teach sex ed, we start to teach them particularly, God gave you a man body so you can become a father. God gave you a woman body so you can become a mother. And there's some really great books that help parents to teach their kids these realities. So when they start to wonder, why does my body look different than my sister's? You can explain to them, so you can be my father. Blah, 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 blah. This is how it goes. But it's the body that allows us to be in relationship. Okay, so again, we have to, this is where I step back and question. Okay, so we have all of these weird means of entering a relationship that have nothing to do with the body. What is that doing to us as human beings? They didn't feel shame. 
signifies an original depth in affirming what is inherent in the person. So the fact that they had no shame meant that they felt completely affirmed by the other person. That they felt accepted by the other person. They had no fear of being manipulated or hurt by the other person. All right, they had that experience of being accepted. Right? This is God's original plan for men and women, that we have the experience of being accepted. That is what is visibly feminine and masculine, through which the personal intimacy of reciprocal communication is constituted in all its radical simplicity and purity. Wedding vows, when we say, I take you as my husband, I take you as my wife, those are words of affirmation. They're words of acceptance. It might sound better if we said, I accept you as my husband, I accept you as my wife. To this fullness of exterior perception corresponds the interior fullness of the vision of man and God. Right, so what takes place visibly corresponds to what's taking place invisibly. And God speaks his blessing. God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. So nakedness signifies the original good of divine vision. Because it refers to this state without shame, that means our, that our first parents before the fall experienced themselves as very good. And they experienced one another as very good. <sighs> Such a technology day. I need a 9 volt battery. <clears throat> Can you still hear me if I speak up? Marianne, yummy. Sister, can you track down a 9-volt battery? There might be some in the closet. Seeing each other through the very mystery of creation, men and women will see each other still more fully and clearly than through the sense of sight. Right? As they see the other person as God sees them, they'll see more clearly than through the sense of sight. It means more than just seeing their body. The original meaning of solitude, unity, and nakedness allows us to reach the basis of an adequate anthropology which seeks to understand and interpret man in what is essentially human. So John Paul II talks about forming an adequate anthropology, which means that we understand what it means to be a human being, and then from that point forward, we can develop our sexual ethic, our ethos for governing relationships, etc., etc., etc. And so the basis of that adequate anthropology are these experiences of solitude, unity, and nakedness. So he talks about like the gift that we make one to another. God reveals himself as creator and he calls to existence from nothing. 
Right? It's God who established man in the world because God is love. And love is not in the creation account. There's no mention of love. Rather, it says, God saw everything he made, and indeed it was very good. Only love, in fact, gives rise to the good and is well pleased with the good. So when it says God saw everything he made and indeed it was very good, it implies that he created it out of love. It implies that he created it out of love. And like my own language is very much infused with using the word love instead of create. And sometimes even I'll use love in exchange with grace, right? So sometimes I'll talk about we have to be loved by our Lord first and then we can love others. Put that in scholastic terms would be we have to receive actual graces from God which move us to virtue, etc., etc., etc. Grace and love are interchangeable. And that battery's dead too. <laughs> so giving indicates... <laughs> Yeah, but there's no juice. So giving indicates the one who gives and the one who receives the gift, as well as the relation established between the two. Okay, so... Ah, it's driving me crazy. All right, what we're going to do is this. We're going to take another break right now, and then we're going to go for the full hour until 1230, and uh, I'll get to questions. But I really need to get through the next eight slides, or I'm going to feel like a failure. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs>